You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Stevie, obviously, the loss of Aaron Rodgers uh, to injury um, definitely hurts. Uh, but as a, as a football team, uh, we have to move forward. Aaron's a great player. Uh, he's a huge part of our of our success, our program. That was Green Bay coach Mike McCarthy after he lost his quarterback, friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers, for what appears to be the season. And, Ron, he says you move forward. How do you move forward without Aaron Rodgers? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Goose, you know, we all hear this next man up philosophy, blah, blah, blah. You know, uh, that's all well and good if the next man up is Steve Young. Uh, or if the next man up is Aaron Rodgers when Brett Favre leaves. But if the next man up is Brett Hundley or Kevin Hogan, you're going down, not up. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, Houston, we got a problem. Green Bay, we got a problem, too. Yeah, I think um, we say that, but look at the Cowboys last year. They lose Tony Romo, and they thought their season was going down a sore. Dak Prescott steps up. And your team, the Patriots, way back when, they lose Drew Bledsoe. They got a guy who's tall guy, who's six round draft pick. They think they're going down down the drain, and Tom Brady steps up. I mean, isn't this what football is all about? Seizing opportunities. Well, it it is, but it depends on how complete the rest of your team is. And I would argue the Packers are not and haven't been for a while anywhere near a complete team. Uh, and Goose, you've heard me talk about Brady as the parish priest. He he forgives yeah. many sins, and I think uh, Rogers is the same kind of player. And you know, on those kind of teams, uh, I think you're going to have a hard time. If you got a solid defense and you got a runner uh, and a, uh, you know, like you know, like they had in, in Dallas, but if you don't, uh, all your problems are going to be escalated. And I, I just think Green Bay's in a lot of trouble. Well, like Green Bay, we don't have Aaron Rodgers this week, but we have some pretty good guests to follow our next man up order, beginning with former Giants great Mark Bavaro, a Hall of Fame preliminary candidate as well as former defensive backs Eric Allen, another preliminary candidate, and Carlton Williamson of the great 49ers team of the 80s. Green Bay Press-Gazette reporter and Hall of Fame voter, friend of the show Pete Doherty will also join us to talk about where the Packers go from now. I think they're going to play the Saints, but uh, (laughs) who knows. Ron, sounds like we've got a good show coming up, mostly because it is. So stick around. You will not be disappointed. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Baseball Championship Series, as most everyone outside of Boston knows, are going on now. And it got me to thinking about October 1989. In fact, this week, 28 years ago Tuesday, October 17, and an earthquake with a 6.9 magnitude shook the Bay Area and that World Series. Ron, what, uh, what do you remember about that? You're a former Bay Area guy. All right. You know, I lived there for 10 and worked there for 10 years. Uh, I remember watching it, the, the game, you know, and all of a sudden I'm looking and I'm thinking, what's, what's going on with my television? It turned out it wasn't, wasn't my television. Yeah. Uh, but the thing that struck me, uh, uh, Goose, was because, I, you know, I had friends there and I knew the area so well and, and you know, I really knew almost immediately what this was going to mean and just how difficult things were going to be. When you saw that uh, collapsed highway, if you lived there and you realized how many, uh, what that was going to mean to Oakland, you know, Oakland was, you know, 
in a way, in the long term, it worked out. It almost became like urban renewal. You know, the, the half the town collapsed. Uh, but in the short term, it was it was just you know terrible. And then you couldn't reach your friends, of course. And but I just remember that bridge, uh, famous bridge mm-hmm. picture where the bridge is down, that car is hanging over there. I'm thinking to myself, I've driven over that bridge ten thousand times, and this could happen at any moment. I'll tell you, Ron, I've been a couple places where we had them. And when that press box starts shaking, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's the word. It's uh, time to go. <laughs> you're right. I've been in a couple of them. I was in a big one in Tokyo. Uh, I was out there for a fight, and uh, this was a really big one. And I was in a fancy big hotel. It was fortunately being made for this. And I got that sort of anxious feeling that you get before it actually starts because your body sort of knows what's happening before you do. And I, the thing I remember, I was on about the 32nd floor at the new Otani Hotel, and I remembered – this old thing they always used to tell you in California, stand in the doorway, you know, in case anything, stand in the doorway. So I'm standing in the doorway, and things, I'm not kidding, it was like a 7.2. Things were rocking. And I finally said, forget this. And I got on my bed, and my theory was, if I'm going out, I'm going out in bed. This is stupid. I'm on the 32nd floor. What difference is it going to make, you know? Uh, And the other thing about the San Francisco earthquake, Goose, was I learned my value, uh, or lack thereof, with the Boston Globe. Uh, where I was working at the time, because Dan Shaughnessy, our base, chief baseball uh, writer at the time, was out there and got uh, terribly freaked out by the situation. So they immediately, as soon as they could get him out, flew him home and flew me out there. Wait a minute. Don't you like me? <laughs> Apparently not so much. That's value. <laughs> okay. Speaking of notable events, it's high time we recognize the most notable achievements of the past week in our Hall of Famous or Infamous Awards that appear periodically on this show. The idea here is to recognize the good, the bad, and the ugly officiating for what they are, worthy of weekly gold jackets or trips to the woodshed. And let me start off by recognizing Alberto Riveron, the senior (laughs) VP of officiating for the NFL. He's the guy who ultimately made the ruling on that Austin Serafin Jenkins touchdown last week, saying the Jets tight end fumbled the ball out of bounds before reaching the end zone, thus costing gangrene a touchdown. Worse, though, he's the guy who defended it even though two of his predecessors at the league's head of officiating, Mike Pereira and Dean Blandino, said there was no evidence to make that call. Bottom line, the catch rule stinks, mostly because nobody, including refs, understand it. Welcome to the Hall of Shame, Alberto. (laughs) You are right about that one, Gooseman, because the thing that struck me about that play was how emphatic the referee was, who was right there in the perfect position, just uh, on the sideline there, staring right at it. He was so emphatic, which you know how it is. A lot of times they're looking at each other. They got one arm up and one arm down. You know, uh, how you reverse that call, you know, was amazing to me. But the Hall of Shame is is not his and his alone. I think you could also welcome in the entire Browns mismanagement team. Uh, they they went and played Houston, and the number one pick that the Texans used to to draft Deshaun Watson, who to come from, the Eagles via who Cleveland, and he riddled them. Three touchdown passes, and he beat him on Sunday. Now, add to that that they took Johnny Menzel over Derek Carr in 2014, and they traded the pick to the Eagles that they used to get Carson Wentz, and ultimately they ended up Ouch. with Kevin Hogan under center. And all they got from all that moving was a wide receiver named Corey Coleman, who in fitting fashion has broken his hands both seasons. He's been with the Browns. <laughs> Tough to be a receiver with broken hands. Run out of stray from the Hall of Shame, walk over to the Hall of Fame, and I'm going to give out my six-week gold jacket to rookie Jacksonville running back Leonard Fournette, who has pumped life into the Jaguars. The fourth overall pick of the draft last April, 
Fournette is the only player in the league to score a touchdown in each of the first six weekends of this NFL season. He ranks second in the NFL, NFL rush with 596 yards. And has pounded the Steelers for 181 yards, the Rams for 130, and the Texans for 100. He also hasn't fumbled yet in 130 carries. Suddenly, there is hope in Jacksonville. You were high on him coming out of the draft. I remember yes, that. Yeah. Uh, now, my uh, gold jacket goes to the guy I just mentioned, Deshaun Watson. But it also goes to one, one sleeve, goes to general manager Rick Smith. He took Deshaun Watson over the objections of his head coach and my friend, Billy O'Brien, and uh, Billy didn't listen to me either. <laughs> I loved Watson, too. Watson has thrown 15 touchdown passes in six weeks. That's more than any other rookie quarterback in his first six games in NFL history. It's, he's look, it's looking like a Hall of Fame pick to me. Now, he may not end up being a Hall of Fame quarterback, but uh, Houston threw a total of 15 touchdown passes all last season. Hats off to Deshaun Watson. Well, one guy who's not in the Hall of Fame, and I don't mean ours, but the real one in Canton, is former running back Cookie Gilchrist. And I wrote about him this week on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. So here it is. For Canton to be the Pro Football Hall of Fame, all forms of gridiron achievement must be recognized, but they are not. If the Pro Football Hall of Fame was indeed inclusive, Cookie Gilchrist would already have a bust in Canton. Cookie played the first six seasons of his professional career in Canada and the final six years in the AFL. How talented was Cookie? Hall of Fame coach Paul Brown of the Cleveland Browns tried to sign him in 1954 when he was still in high school. <laughs> but the NFL overruled that contract, so Gilchrist moved north to play football in Canada. He made the all-CFL team in each of his first five seasons. He rushed for a team-leading 958 yards, seven touchdowns for the Grey Cup champion Hamilton Tiger Cats in 1957, and also intercepted three passes as a linebacker on defense, returning two of them for scores. In 1958, Cookie finished as the CFL rushing runner-up with 1,200 yards. In 1959, he added the plays-kicking chores to his workload and scored 73 points on five touchdowns, nine field goals, and 16 conversion kicks. In 1960, Cookie made the All-CFL team on both sides of the ball <laughs> at fullback on offense and linebacker on defense. Now, he moved back south of the border of the Buffalo Bills in 1962 and promptly became the first AFL player ever to rush for 1,000 yards in a single season on his way to AFL MVP honors and the first of his four consecutive AFL All-Star game invites. He rushed for a league-leading 14 touchdowns in 1963, then led the AFL in rushing again with 981 yards in 1964. He capped his season with a 122-yard rushing effort in a 20-7 victory over San Diego that gave the Bills their first-ever AFL championship. On the field, he was a freak of nature, a 6'1", 250-pound package of power and speed who was bigger than the defensive linemen and linebackers of his day. In his 12-year career, over two leagues in six cities, Gilchrist rushed for 9,200 yards, caught 196 passes, and scored 76 touchdowns. He also kicked 19 field goals and intercepted 12 passes. Now, Cookie passed away in 2011 at the age of 75, and the Bills will enshrine him posthumously into their wall of honor on October 29 during halftime ceremonies of a game against the Oakland Raiders. Frankly, his career is deserving so much more. 
Goose, I'm so tired from listening to what he did, I have to lay down. It's unbelievable. <laughs> the man did it all. He that was a Swiss Army knife of football. He certainly was. Now, do you see any avenue open for uh, Cookie Gilchrist into the Pro Football Hall of Fame as a senior candidate, or is the emphasis just too overwhelming on NFL stats? No, it's too overwhelming on NFL stats. But I'm telling you, he was a, he was a generational player. Uh, when I look at Cookie Gilchrist, you see uh, Marion Motley, uh, Jim Brown, a Herschel Walker, a Bo Jackson, and and three of those guys aren't going to be in the Hall of Fame. But he was—you had to see him. I can't just tell you about him. You really had to see Cookie Gilchrist to appreciate Cookie Gilchrist. You're right, man. I saw him, and uh, as a kid, he used to run over the Patriots every time he played them. And uh, the thing I always remember was the broadcaster used to say, "Looky, looky, looky! Here comes Cookie!" And <laughs> it's a true story. And bam, five Patriots would be on their back. There's another guy who missed our Hall of Shame, and that's Vikings linebacker Anthony Barr. Packers coach Mike McCarthy thought his hit on Aaron Rodgers was dirty, and I know just the guy to ask about that. He's coming up right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. We opened the show talking about the biggest event of the past week, and no, I'm not talking about the Bay Area earthquake of October 17, 1989, but the broken collarbone suffered by Aaron Rodgers last weekend. That shook the NFL world. He's off for the season, and the question now is, what's this mean for the Packers, and what does it mean for the NFC North? So to help us with those answers, we've invited one of our favorite guests back, Hall of Famer, the Hall of Fame voter and Green Bay Press-Gazette reporter Pete Doherty. Pete, everyone in Green Bay dressed in black these days? Oh, it's uh, it's pretty grim. Um, you know, you lose. I mean, these quarterbacks are everything, and these great quarterbacks, you know, they give you a real chance every year. And if he's done for the year, which at least for now looks likely, um, there's just no way this team is winning the Super Bowl. So what does this mean for the Packers? I know you you have a guy named Brett at quarterback. Unfortunately, it's, it's Brett Hundley, not Brett Favre. So what are the expectations going forward? Uh, you know, it's a lot unknown. His rookie year a couple of years ago, he really had a nice uh, preseason. Um, his pass rating was over 100, showed some real talent. Last year he missed all of uh, training camp, or most of training camp, because of a sprained ankle that he kept aggravating. And this year he was okay in the preseason. He knew it. You could tell he was more in command, but uh, you know it wasn't. He, he didn't produce like he did as a rookie. So there's there's a lot to wonder there. He's a, I'm sure he's a better player, but is he an NFL starter? You know that's a huge question. Is he a legit backup? You know that's still to be proven too. But he's gonna he's gonna get a long chance. I mean they've been working with this guy for two and a half years. They picked him. They've developed them. They could have, in the last two off-seasons, gotten somebody else to be their backup. Uh, but they like him, and now they're going to find out what they have. Would the Packers look into it all, uh, Colin Kaepernick, after what he did to them in the playoffs <laughs> a few years ago and, and what he did in the NFL? And uh, certainly would end his grievance before it even started. If <laughs> so, well, would, they, would they consider him? I, I don't think so. I mean, Thompson just doesn't add guys from other teams who had who had been on other teams during the season very often. Um, you know, the big thing here, I think, is, you know, besides any turmoil that they might feel it would cause the franchise, um, you know, bringing them in the media scrutiny and all that, is, you know, the guy had a good year last year statistically. I mean, it was, it was fine. It was okay. But he was 1-10 as a starter. So is he even any better than Hunley? You know, I think they need to find out from Hunley, you know, give Hunley a long shot here and see if he is. 
And if you brought in Kaepernick now, then you're inviting a quarterback controversy as soon as Hunley hits any struggles, um, which, you know, that could divide your locker room. Plus, uh, you know, Kaepernick would be coming in cold. You know, uh, McCarthy doesn't know him inside and out like he knows Hunley. Uh, he doesn't know uh, McCarthy's offense, so this isn't like, uh, you know, Cutler going down to Adam Gase in, uh, in Miami. Uh, so it's just, you know, there's just not any reason to think that that's going to happen. We're with Hall of Fame voter and Green Bay Press-Gazette reporter Pete Doherty on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at talkoffamenet. And, Pete, there was no flag in that play, but I know Rodgers was not too happy. Did the Patrick did the Packers believe that hit to be clean? Um, a couple players in the locker room said that, you know, he could see, Barr could see the ball was gone. He still hit him. They didn't like it. One guy said it looked like a football play to him. McCarthy yesterday uh, took issue with it. He didn't say anything about it being late. He didn't like that he drove him into the ground, landed on top of him, you know, and then put him into the ground. I, you know, for my two-bit opinion, with the way they've been calling these things for the last year or two, it just it did look a half tick late to me, and it did look like he, you know, gave him a little extra going into the ground. So I was a little surprised it didn't get flagged. I don't think it was this awful malicious hit or anything like that. It looked like a guy who they were probably – talking before the game, hey, you get a chance to hit Rodgers, you know, hit him. You know, don't get a penalty, but hit him. And that, so it looked like that kind of hit to me. We'll find out, I guess, uh, you know, in a couple of days whether the NFL finds him or not. Do you think that uh, maybe the whole league has gone too far on those kinds of things? And now, because I would look at that hit and I didn't really think it was, you know, he was running around and, and you know, once you're going to run around, you there's a risk that something's going to happen. Um so do you think, Pete, that maybe the, everything's gone too far and now almost every hit is if a guy gets hurt, it's like, oh, it was a dreadful uh, dreadful sort of thing, and it makes everybody kind of wonder, whereas maybe five or ten years ago we wouldn't even have thought twice about it? Yeah, and, and I mean, and your you know, your your point's a good one. I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, a play that jumped off the screen or anything and or off the field, and, um, you know, it's just that these these quarterbacks are everything, and you know you take you know Collinsworth basically said this. You know you you take Aaron Rodgers out of the league for the rest of the season, and the Packers are not so interesting anymore. And a team that you know had a chance to go to the Super Bowl and draw a lot of ratings and all, and draw a lot of interest around the country, you know they're basically out of it now. So the 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 risk reward, the loss that the league suffers when a guy like Rogers gets hurt for a long term like this is huge. Um, so I understand why they make the rules that way and why these guys are they're so important to the league that I guess push comes to shove. It does make it really hard on the defense and your points a good one and it does change the game some, but um, you know, I they probably should protect these guys as much as they can because it's what drives the league. It's a quarterback league. Pete, has Brett Hundley told the locals yet to R-E-L-A-X? <laughs> <laughs> no, he has not. Um, this is, you know, this will be really interesting just to see. You know, they've worked with this guy for a while, so it's not like some rookie coming in. Uh, we'll see what kind of Coach McCarthy is as far as, uh, you know, he's a, he got this job because of his work with quarterbacks his whole career. Um, so how has he developed this guy? How is there their acumen for judging quarterback talent because they, they could have, like I said earlier, they could have gotten somebody else and they, they're going with him. So, um, you know, while 
if Rodgers is done for the year, then the, you know the Packers aren't going to the Super Bowl. But this could still this will still be interesting to watch for Packers fans just to see what they have and on land for other teams because if the guy you know wins some games and looks pretty good, you know maybe those teams looking for a quarterback uh, he might he might draw some interest and they might be able to get a a fairly high draft pick for him in the off season because he's um, he's only going to his fourth season next year. You know, we always hear next man up, next man up, next man up, and you know, Goose and I have talked about this uh, today and other times. Uh, yet, please, <laughs> you know, we're talking about Aaron Rodgers. So, how does Mike McCarthy convince his players that next man up actually applies in this case? Because, as you pointed out, it doesn't. Yeah, you know, Ron, I've been. Uh, that's basically what I was asking guys after the game, and I've been trying to figure out because, I mean, you're right. I mean, let's get real here. This is. This is taking Michael Jordan off the Bulls, you know, and um, it changes everything. And, you know, I guess you just have to rely on their professionalism. And I think, um, I'm, you know, McCarthy will probably take it as a big challenge. I was talking with an offensive coordinator for another team today, and I said, so if you're on that staff, what are you thinking? And he said, yeah, well, I'll tell you right now what they're thinking. They're thinking we're going to get it done with this guy, and, and everybody is going to treat us like geniuses when we do it. So, you know, he said as of right now, there's probably – you know, some optimism over there that they can get this done. Now, that reality can change in a hurry. I mean, look at the Colts and uh, what was that in ten? They were ten yeah. and six, and then Manning has surgery right before the season starts, and they're two and fourteen. So it can get really ugly. I think these guys probably have more own on talent than those Colts did. But um, you know, well, reality can slap them in the face hard. But uh, I think as of right now, it is a chance for you know some people to really prove themselves and. Um, you know, prove some coaching acumen and some playing talent. So, Pete, who's the team to beat now in the NFC North? Oh, you know, I was thinking about that. My first inclination, I guess I'm still inclined to say the Lions because they have the by far the best quarterback of the of the group. But the Vikings do have a good defense. And, I, you know, I watched their run against the Bears a week ago, and that was an ugly game. And if you would have watched after Rodgers went down on Sunday, I'm sure for the people who were uninterested or disinterested, it was probably a pretty ugly game to watch. But, you know, that's in part because they have a lot of talent on defense and a really good defensive coach. So if Case Keenum's just good enough, you know, they could they could be a, a problem. You know, the, the thing is, I mean, eight and eight or nine and seven might win this thing. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, you know, because uh, in 08 when Brady went down, you know, everybody around here likes to talk about that season in New England. Oh, they went eleven and five with Matt Castle, and I always used to say, "Yeah, they went eleven and five, but the only games that were competitive were the five they lost. I mean, those were the important games. He couldn't win any of them, and then that I, I've always appreciated that he then went to other places and proved that I was right that he couldn't win those those sorts of games. Um, so I, I, I just think that it's hard to believe that they can do anything with this kid enough. To get you in the playoffs, I mean, maybe oh, they can. you know, and that's you know, it's funny that you, you talked about that season because I'm writing right now about all this stuff, and I talked about the Colts, but I also mentioned those those Patriots. But you're exactly right. If when Brady was the you know when they started that season with Brady as quarterback, they were a clear big favorite to win the Super Bowl. He goes down, they went 11 and five. They were no threat at all right. to win the Super Bowl, even with that nice record. They were no threat at all. 
So while it does reflect well on the coaching staff and that whole program that they won that many games, they weren't they weren't going anywhere. So that tells you the gulf. That's still a huge gulf between being like almost a prohibitive favorite to win the Super Bowl and being a borderline playoff team. That's a huge difference, and that's exactly the difference these quarterbacks make. And you know, Hundley could play, could come out and play pretty good football and go. I don't know, you know, four and six, and you know, Packers finish eight and eight, and it's just. I mean, look at what a difference that would be because they were a legit Super Bowl contender. Rodgers, it was early, but Rodgers was, he looked like a, a man on a mission. Um, he had brought him back a couple times to win games, and they were a real threat to, to get to the Super Bowl this year. And now, I mean, if he doesn't come back this year, there's just, it's, it ain't happening. There's no way. Pete, I'm going to tell Tony Romo not to hang by his phone. So, <laughs> <laughs> hey, Pete, thanks yeah. for your time. Just in case you know we need it, we have we have Jeff George contact info uh, for you. <laughs> pass it on to Ted Thompson. But uh, that was Hall of Fame voter and Green Bay Press Gazette writer Pete Doherty. Up next, it's former tight end and now Hall of Fame candidate Mark Favaro. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. The Hall of Fame induction of uh, Terrell Davis last August, despite having his career shortened by injury, has opened the door for conversations about other players who show, shone brightly for a few seasons before injury cut their career short. And one can certainly argue our next guest, Mark Bavaro, fits that description. Mark became an instant starter for the Giants in his 1985 rookie season and was All-Pro selection in 1986 and 1987 catching 66 passes for 1,001 yards in 86 and scoring eight times in 55 catches in 87. He played on two Super Bowl champions, making two critical third-down conversions in the Giants' 2019 Super Bowl 25 win over the Bills. Already struggling with a degenerative knee injury all that 1990 season, Mark was cut by the Giants in July of 91 for financial reasons and then re-signed and put on the pup list. Uh, Despite being urged to retire, he played for the Browns in 1992 and then two years with the Eagles uh, before retiring. This year, Mark was among the 108 players on the Hall of Fame's preliminary ballot, which will be reduced to 25 and then 15. Uh, Mark, welcome to the show, and we're glad to see you on that list. Hi, Ron. Thanks for having me. Happy to be there. When a player like Terrell Davis, uh, who really had only two Hall of Fame-worthy seasons uh, before injuries ended his career, gets voted into the Hall, does it give a player like yourself some hope that, uh, that maybe people will will look at you differently and look at some other players differently who, through no fault of their own, had their careers cut short? Um, you know, I thought Terrell was a great player. And, and to be honest with you, I don't think about the Hall of Fame too much, and we've had discussions in the past. Um, but every year, uh, as time goes by, I care less and less. Mark, the, the tight end position has changed dramatically since you played. It seemed a more versatile and demanding position prior to the late 1990s and certainly far less of a receiving one. Do you recognize the position in today's NFL? I don't. That's a good, uh, that's a good point. I don't even consider uh, a tight end position, uh, a tight end position uh, as far as I knew it. Um, it's, it's definitely receiving. It doesn't mean it's better or worse. It's just, uh, it has evolved definitely into a receiver a, a, in, a, in a big target receiver position. I mean, the, I think tight ends are the, are the are the superstars of the of the NFL offenses these days. Uh, whereas 
few years ago, it was the wide receivers, and before that, it was the running backs. Um, now, if you have teams that have a, a great tight end now, uh, are really the top teams now. You know, you got Kelsey over there in Kansas City, he's doing great. Jason Witt in Dallas, and of course Gronkowski up here in New England. You know, you mentioned Gronk, and I was just thinking uh, as you were talking, Mark, when you see him. I mean, you were a thousand-yard receiver at a time when tight ends weren't doing that uh, very often, because uh, yeah, I had one one season at, at, at over a thousand. When you see and Gronk, do you say, with... "Yeah," you know, well, I was just going to say, when you see Gronk, you say, yeah, "I could, I could do that," if that's what they asked me to do. Yeah, I mean, I see, I see. You know, when when these guys have big receiving games, uh, you know, ten catches, whatever, you know, these big these big number of games. You know, I, I I tell people I, I had games like that. You know. I mean, it's not—it's nothing that we couldn't do back in the day. But um, I also had days uh, where I caught bitches and still felt like I contributed more to the game than I did on the days when I had ten catches. I don't think you can say that in today's game. If you—if you're not catching passes in today's game on offense as a as a receiver, uh, there's really not much else to do. I mean, there's not much of a, a, a running game to contribute to these days. I look at uh, Ron Kramer, who was picked as one of the tight ends on the 50th anniversary team. He was a terrific blocker. I mean, he was virtually a tackle that played uh, tight end for the for those 60 Packers. He's not in the Hall of Fame, never even been discussed. Has the blocking aspect just been forgotten by the Hall of Fame voters, do you think? Uh, I don't think it's been forgotten. I just don't think it's ever been taken into consideration. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that any of the tight ends in the, in the Hall of Fame um, are there because of primarily because of their blocking? There's only there's only three two tight ends, in my opinion, in the Hall of Fame. That's Mackey, Ditka, and Dave Casper. And while they were all very good blockers, I mean, they're you know the reason that they're in there was because of their all around game, which you know was included a heavy passing, a heavy receiving uh, stats, and um, they contributed to their offenses in, in the receiving game. Now the the other tight ends in the in the Hall of Fame, I don't think you could even even come close to saying that blocking was is, is even part of the reason that they're in the Hall of Fame. They're they're in solely for the receiving stats. You know, one of the things Parcells used to talk to me about was, uh, which boggles my mind, as you know, we've talked about it before, Mark. Uh, but you blocking Reggie White one on one, and the first time he ever told me that, I said. You know, would you, would you get hit with a brick on the way? We <laughs> nobody blocked Reggie White one on one, and he said, uh, "You know, we asked Bavaro to do it, and he did it." I'm not saying he won every every time, but he won more than he lost. What on earth was that like for you to block him? Well, I mean, first of all, it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, second of all, you know, I wouldn't say that <clears throat> that I, you know blocked him or like in any in a, in a dominating sense i basically uh you know got in his way enough to keep him from making uh tackles more often than not and uh we had we had good running games against uh against the eagles did practicing on a daily basis against carl banks make both of the two of you better players yeah in my opinion you know carl banks was the was the best run defender linebacker uh, that I've ever seen. Uh, he was impossible to block. 
and having to block him on a daily basis in practice where we didn't really take it easy on one another. Um, it really it did sharpen both of our skills, definitely, yes. Yeah, he's a guy who was an all-decade player. He's never been discussed for the Hall of Fame either. Which I think is ridiculous, you know. I mean, but you know what? To be honest, with you, I mean, there's so many players out yeah. there. There's so many good players, so many great players. I mean, you, you can't. Everybody can't be in there, you know. So, does that make the guys who aren't in the Hall of Fame any less better than the guys that are in it? You know, that's the sticking point that that bugs me. I I, I don't think that being in the Hall of Fame makes uh, these guys better. Like, I don't think there's any linebacker in the Hall of Fame that's better than Kyle Banks, and I definitely don't think there's any tight end in the Hall of Fame better than me. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, you mentioned earlier about uh, how you sort of view this as the years go by, and you know, I know you've been put now in the Giants' ring of honor, and you've been this Hall of Fame nominee a number of times. But I remember years ago when you had 12 catches against the Bengals and the Giants lost the game, and after the game you said, I'd rather win the game. When people asked you about about that, so it all sort of seemed like these kind of things didn't mean as much to you as maybe they do to some other people. Um, well, they didn't. I don't think they meant that much to to players back in that day either. I mean, the the, the goal was to win, you know. And if you if you didn't help your team win, it didn't really matter what you were doing mm-hmm. out on the field. You you weren't going to be satisfied with that. Um, and especially on the Giants, you know. If, if you were the type of player that was, would go out and celebrate his performance after a loss, I mean, he, you wouldn't be on that team for very long. That's not the type of players that uh, a guy like Parcells wanted on his team. Uh, and, but I think that that was a, I think that was the case for a lot of players back in those days. There wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of um, self-promotion back then. There wasn't a whole lot of gazing up at the, at the stats sheets that they would hang on, on the billboard in the locker room on Monday or Tuesday. I mean, it, it all came down to wins and losses. Those, that was really the only stat that, that I know the guys on the Giants ever looked at. And I think, for the most part, um, I think a lot of players were like that. I, 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 I really don't believe Jerry Rice was, was, was checking his stats every, after every game. You know, I just don't think he was that type of player, especially back in the 80s. It was a pleasant surprise, I mean, to, to, be, to feel that you were on a team that could beat anybody and that could come back from any deficit. I mean, that was a great feeling. And not, not only believing in your, in your teammates, but believing in your coaches, uh, that they were going to give you the, the proper game plan, the correct game plan, uh, to go out and win. I mean, and the, the best example of that was Belichick putting together that defensive game plan against Buffalo in 1990. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of confidence on, on, on the Giants Going to get up against the Bills in 1990. I mean, we were all, we couldn't even we didn't even score a touchdown against the 49ers in the championship game, and here we were going and facing an opponent that was was averaging 55 points a game. So I mean, I, I didn't know how we were going to beat it. I just didn't see how it could happen. But you know, Parcells got us ready. Belichick had that had that game plan uh, in place, and somehow we we ended up winning. Now. Going into Cleveland and playing for for, for Bill there was a, was a different type of thing because he, he didn't have the same type of players in place yet, and he didn't have the the authority uh, that he has in the Patriots. So, I mean, he was really up against it in Cleveland. But, you know, he and he and he did do well. People think he failed in Cleveland. He did. He actually, I thought he did a great job. He brought yeah. he brought Cleveland to 
the playoffs a few times, and the teams that he put together in his final years, they were they were tough. I mean, we played against them when I was on the Eagles. We played against the Browns, and that team, I think they they really took it to us. I mean, they were tough, physical. They were good. If he had just if uh, Cleveland had just stuck with them a little longer, I think they would have they would have seen the same type of success the Patriots are seeing. You once told me that you were glad that your career uh, went the way it did, not only just the successes, but also uh, the being released after having played, you know, all that previous season on a, on a terrible knee and going through that sort of financial decision that, that, that they made. A lot of people would have been hated all of that, but I remember you telling me one time you were actually, in a way, appreciated it. Why, why is that, that, that you looked at it that way? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I appreciated it, but I mean, I was I was relieved. There, there was more of a sense of relief when the Giants uh, let me go than resentment or bitterness. I was tired. I was tired. I was beat up. I was hurting. And uh, when they said, uh, you know, that final year with the Giants in 1990, that was that really took a toll on 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 my body and mind. Uh, and you know, at the Giants. At the Giants, you always had to play through your injuries. You know that was always a, a big sticking point for for Bill and and for that whole uh, culture that we had on that team. The Giants were filled with tough guys. I mean, nobody sat out out of a game lightly. You know, like you see today, guys are just. I know guys lay down on the field today with holding their finger. <laughs> they they stop the whole game. The, the the trainers all come out. And they they look at a guy's finger, and then you know after ten fifteen minutes he gets up and walks off. I mean, if if anyone ever, even ever if anyone ever, ever did that in practice, he'd be gone. Never mind on a game. So so getting through that year was was tough for me. It was, it was traumatic. It was it was hard. So when they finally let me uh, release me, I mean I think I was more relieved than anything. But uh, I took that year off and recovered. Uh, and you know, and got back my um, my motivation, and I was ready to go after that. I, I needed a break, so uh, I was more relieved than anything. Well, unfortunately, uh, we'd love to talk to you a lot longer than this, Mark. But uh, time's up. We got to go pay the bills. But really appreciate you coming by to visit us. Hopefully, you'll come back again. And uh, and and we certainly believe that uh, the Hall of Fame should have a position for a guy who actually played the real position of tight end, and that was certainly you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And you know, come as long as people like you uh, uh, recognize that, uh, and some of you know my teammates and some coaches. I mean, that's that's all the the, the uh, satisfaction I need. You know. But thank Great. you. Thanks, Mark. Okay. Appreciate Thanks, Mark. it. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. That's the two minute warning. That's a wake-up call, guys, and it means we're on the two-minute drill, and I'll be asking the questions. So here we go, Ron. You're up. First it was Odell Beckham, then J.J. Watt, now Aaron Rodgers. Who's the next high-profile NFL star to be carted off? If Tom Brady keeps getting hit the way he's been getting hit, they'll drive the, the ambulance right out on the field to take him away. <laughs> you, can't do, you just can't do it. You can't keep getting hit like that. Brad Hundley, Randy Hundley, or Chet Hundley? Oh, this is easy. Chad Hundley, because his backup was David Brinkley. <laughs> That's Hall of Fame material. What advice would you give, give referee Tony Carrente the next time he tries hailing a cab in New York City? Don't fumble his cell phone, because they'll have to call Uber. 
Speaking of officials, referee Carl Cheffers has walked off almost eight football fields worth of penalties in the NFL's <laughs> first six weekends. So who has greater endurance, Carl Cheffers or Forrest Gump? Cheffers has greater endurance, but Forrest had better judgment. Martavius Bryant has requested a trade from the Pittsburgh Steelers. Does anyone care? Unfortunately for him, no one in Pittsburgh. Colin Kaepernick has filed a collusion suit against the NFL. Should Tim Tebow be, jo- be invited to join and make it a class action suit? Excellent idea, because then Kaepernick would have both God and the Constitution on his side. <laughs> Larry Fitzgerald says he's already have a Super Bowl ring if Adrian Peterson had gotten Arizona sooner. Question, would Larry Fitzgerald still have a Hall of Fame receiving numbers if Adrian Peterson had gotten there sooner? He would not, and he also would not have been in Arizona if Adrian Peterson got there soon. He would say, get me out of here. Atlanta has lost the last two weeks at home. Do the Falcons really want a Super Bowl rematch with the Patriots this weekend? Uh, they do, Gooseman, because everything's peachier for the Falcons when they're not near Peachtree Street. Were the winless 49ers a better team with or without linebacker Navarro Bowman? It's hard to be worse with them or without them. They stink either way. <laughs> Joe Flacco has not thrown a touchdown pass in three of his last four games. What's going on with this $120 million quarterback? Well, Gooseman, you know that I am an advocate of the coach's tape, right? The all 22, as they say. And what I saw was this, nine sacks in his last four games. It is exceedingly difficult to play quarterback when upside down. That's the end of that. Ouch. That's the end of our first hour, but stay right where you are. Coming up in our second hour, we have Carl Williamson, Eric Allen. You're listening to the Talk of Him Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Welcome back to our number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Rick, along with Ron. And we have former defensive backs Carl Williamson and Eric Allen coming up in this hour along with our bi-monthly dose of doctor data. But before we do, do you guys know we have a preliminary list for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame out? I didn't know that, actually, but if there's any list uh, for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that doesn't have the Jay Giles Band born and raised in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that list is worthless. I know Clark cares about this list, but, Ron, do you care about this list? (laughs) Well, this past weekend I was in Colorado Springs, and I did go to the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame, and I would say I care more about the Camarillo Brothers, the great team roping team, (laughs) than I do about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, among the... Candidates for this year are Kate Bush, the Moody Blues, Dire Straits, the Zombies, Bon Jovi, and the Cars. There are 19 up for five spots. Got any favorites, Ron, besides oh. Jay Giles' band? It's got to be the Moody Blues. I don't want to tell you the things I was doing when the Moody Blues were playing, but uh, they're <laughs> legal now, but they weren't necessarily legal in those days. Uh, Ron, you were a knight <laughs> in white satin. Yes, I was indeed. Hey, me, I'm a zombies guy. Time of the season, tell her no, she's not there. Give me the zombies as part of the soundtrack of my youth. I like now, it. Now, Clark, I know he wants to parachute in with Todd Rundgren and possibly Jethro Tull. Me, put him in line behind Spencer Davis. <laughs> well, you know, Clark, as usual, is half right. Uh, Jethro Tull should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. Your favorite expression, uh, first ballot Hall of Famer. 
Well, who the hell's the other guy? Todd who? Uh, you mean Jethro Tull, future Hall of Famer, uh, Jethro Tull? <laughs> future hey, Ryan, Hall of Famer. Have you ever been to the Hall of Fame in Cleveland? I have, actually, yeah. It's pretty cool, I must say. It is pretty cool. That is neat. That is a, that is a bucket list item. Go see the Indians. Go see the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And if you have to, go see the Browns. <laughs> no, don't. So do there's that. our early ballot for Cleveland. And put down your pencils, guys. We're going to stop right there. When we return, we'll talk about a couple of guys playing today who you may or may not know. And maybe take it for Canton. Carl Williamson played in that 81 Niners team. Eric Allen played in that great Philadelphia team in the early 1990s. You're listening to Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. In the first hour, we offered our Hall of Fame and Shame Awards, and we forgot to mention Pittsburgh safety Mike Mitchell. Did you see the hit he put on Alex Smith the other night? You know, I did, Gooseman, and uh, this won't surprise you, but it didn't really bother me. I mean, to me, Smith started to run. He tucked the ball under his arm and started to run forward, and Mitchell was pursuing him, as you're supposed to do if you're playing defense. Then at the last second, he pulled it up and he flipped it. Well, one stride later, Mitchell hit him. I mean, I'm sorry that, you know, enough with the, I'm all for protecting the quarterback, but he became a running back, and then what's a guy supposed to do? Oh, I can't really pursue him because maybe he's going to throw it? I mean, I didn't think it was a dirty hit. Yeah, Ron, the only surprise I had was there was no flag. Usually if you get within breathing distance of a quarterback, you're going to get a yellow flag. Yeah, well, my guess is, Goose, that occasionally those referees go, well, that's not right. (laughs) (laughs) And then they get yelled at from New York, and then they decide the next time they're going to throw the flag. Okay, let's talk about Clark's favorite topic, future Hall of Famers. We did this last (laughs) week with J.J. Watt, but I'd like to move in another direction, basically east, to address two others. First up, quarterback Eli Manning. Someone said he was a future Hall of Famer last week. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, he's got the two Super Bowl wings. He's never led the league in anything but interceptions. Where do you stand with Eli, Ron? You know, look, he's a good quarterback. You know, he's the Hall of, of well, you know, I'm big on the Hall of Very Good. I'm not 100% sure he's in the Hall of Very Good. Look, he's the third best quarterback in his own family. How do you get in the Hall of Fame? You know what I mean? It's, <laughs> come on. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I. If he didn't have the the Super Bowl victories, you wouldn't be talking about him at all. So basically, you're hanging your whole uh, candidacy on that. Well, Jim Plunkett was better than that. You know. Let, and, and, let me give you the flip side. Eli Manning ranks seventh all time in both passing yards and passing touchdowns. The six quarterbacks ahead of him are either in the hall or on the way. He's also won two Super Bowls and been the MVP of both games. And whether it was David Tyree, Plaxico Burst, and Mario Manningham, Manning made the throws to win the biggest games of his life. And there's something to be said for delivering in the clutch. So he has the stats, the rings, and the moments on his resume. And for that reason, his case is worthy of strong consideration. And I am anxious to have that one debated. Well, you're right. I mean, certainly you're right. He had some of those uh, moments that you're not going to, Forget, that's for sure, you know. But, I mean, <laughs> the passing yards to me these days, they're not even a legitimate statistic anymore because of the way the defense has, has changed so much. I mean, you know, uh, Carson Palmer's the 13th most uh, productive in terms of yardage, and Vinny Testaverde is 12th. I mean, you know, 
what are we talking about here? I mean, Kerry Collins is 16th all time. I mean, it, the Ron, game changed so much that yeah, you yeah, just. Yeah, so is the, the selection process. You know, back in the day, you know, when you guys were young pups in that committee, it was the eye test. Is this guy Hall of Fame? But now it is statistic driven. Right. You know right. that, and I know that. You know, I think the, the difference between Plunkett and Manning. Plunkett never went to a Pro Bowl, and that's what's hurting Ken Riley, too. You don't go to a Pro Bowl, there's there's kind of a stigma about your candidacy. Right. No, I agree with you there, and I, I was out there when Jim was resurrected by the uh, uh, by the Raiders, uh, you know, and he, uh, you know, it was a different game in those days, and certainly the Raiders played it uh, differently. You know, he was never going to be some 60% thrower because they were chucking the ball down the field and, and looking for those big chunk plays that in those days they got. Um but I, I, and you're certainly right about the stat-driven folks in the room. Uh, I no disrespect to those folks, as Parcells used to say just before he would disrespect you. Uh, but but you know, uh, <laughs> De Podesta is a is a <laughs> is a big stats guy, and how's that working out in Cleveland? You know, yeah. I think those stats uh, often are like hostages. You can make them say whatever you want. I'll go back to one of the things you taught me. The, more, the important thing of ability is availability. Right. Eli Manning has won more games in his career than Terry Bradshaw, Troy Aikman, Steve Young, Jim Kelly, Warren Moon, and Dan Fouts. You know, quarterbacks get paid to win, and he's won plenty of both games and championships. Well, he has won plenty of games. There's no question about it. And, and you know, I mean, it's going to be an interesting debate. You know, he's going yeah. to get a, end up in the room, uh, and it's going to be an interesting. Uh, uh, Debate, you know, because one of the things, as I said earlier, that sticks out to me, if you're the third best quarterback in your family, yeah. uh, yeah, <laughs> you really belong in the Hall of Fame. It's going to be funny. Let's let's talk about another guy, uh, Carolina linebacker Luke Keekley. Last week suffered his third concussion. You know, I don't think his career is over, but there's always that chance. So if his career did end today, would he be a Hall of Fame candidate? You know, short career, I know, but you know, with Terrell Davis, we talked about this. Here's a guy who in his first four years has named All-Pro four times, Defensive Rookie of the Year, and the youngest ever to win Defensive Player of the Year. Does that make him a Hall of Famer, Ron? Well, you know, in the past, and you know, uh, I'm more people, I'm, I'm a big believer in the in, in longevity. Uh, but once you put Terrell Davis in there, and you remember, yeah. Goose, yeah. in the room that day, I mentioned this, you're going to open up a door that maybe you're going to wish you hadn't opened up. Well, if it's opened up for Terrell Davis, who did not – was not an all-pro every year he played. How do you close it on Keekley, who was? If every year I played, I was an all-pro, and I was defensive player of the year and the youngest guy ever to do it, how do you keep me out just because I got hurt? And I don't yeah. see any way that, that they're going to be able to do it. Right. You know how I keep you out? Defensive players play defense. without rings have yeah. a difficult time in this process, as yeah. you will know. Yeah. Well, Ryan, I know that sound. It's the sound of a legitimate Hall of Famer myself. Canton, class of 2004. One of the only three on this show, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and I'm back with Dr. Data. And today we're going to talk about eh, a little bit of NFL parity. The home field in the NFL is the backbone of playoff contention and championships. 13 of the 51 Super Bowl champions went unbeaten at home, and 32 of the champs lost one game or fewer. The Dolphins went 14 at a hole at NO at home in winning back-to-back Lombardi trophies in 1972 and 73, and the Denver Broncos went 16 and 0 at home in winning back-to-back in 1997 and 1998. You know whether it's the the altitude of Denver, the heat and humidity of Miami, the cold of Green Bay, or the winds at the Meadowlands, 
home teams tend to benefit from playing in familiar conditions and surroundings. Historically, home teams win between 57 and 59% of their games each NFL season. Last season, home teams won 58% of the games. So what's happening in today's NFL is puzzling. Through six games a season, home teams have an overall losing record. They are 45 and 46. And sure, bad teams can't win at home. The Browns and 49ers are both winless this season, and they have combined for five of those home losses. But the good teams are struggling at home as well. How do you explain the defending Super Bowl champion New England Patriots and defending NFC champion Atlanta Falcons? They're good teams, but both are 1-2 and two at home this season. The defending NFC East champion Cowboys are also 1-1-2 one at, one one at home. So are the Detroit Lions and the Oakland Raiders, wildcard teams, a year ago. Through six weeks, there are only four teams still unbeaten at home. Bills, Eagles, Packers, and Seahawks. The Eagles and Packers both lead their divisions, and the Bills and Seahawks are both a game back in theirs. Win at home, and good things happen to you. Lose at home, and the road to Minneapolis next February becomes markedly longer. Well, Goose, uh, once again, you've moved the numbers, as you often do, and, and raise an interesting subject. Explains all the mistakes I've made picking games this uh, last <laughs> first six weeks. At least that's going to be my excuse. But what I'm wondering is this, do you think, an aberration? Or is this proof that the NFL has finally achieved universal mediocrity during its quest for parity? Yeah, I think that's the direction we're headed. I, I think going forward, we may see home teams winning 55 56%. The numbers are going to come down. You know, I always thought, Ron, the key to a, a playoff berth was to go 6-2 and two at home, 4-4 four and four on the road. That gets you to 10 wins, and that's generally, that'll get you in either with a division or a wild card. But when you start giving away those home games, you've got to win them on the road, and that makes the life a lot tougher for, for, for some of these teams. And I think that's, I think you're going to see, uh, you're not going to see a 14-2 this year. You're not going to see a 13-3. I think you're going to see a lot of 11-5, 10-6 and six teams in the playoffs. Yeah, to me, it's, it's uh, evidence that, you know, I think people like greatness. You want know, to see great yeah. teams, three or four great teams. There are no great teams. But there's a lot of bad teams, and there's a lot of mediocre teams that could make it or could not make it. And and certainly you've seen it this these first six weeks. I mean, the Patriots have been miserable at home. You know, there's only one team in Super Bowl history that that had a losing record at home, and still went to Super Bowl. That was the Giants, 2007 Giants. I love those Giants in 2007. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's no place like breaks. Uh, we're going to take one right now. So coming up, it's defensive back Carlton Williamson. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our next guest, Carlton Williamson, is a rookie starter on the 1981 Super Bowl champion San Francisco 49ers, one of three rookie starters in that defensive backfield. Carlton went on to play all eight of his seasons in San Francisco and win two more Super Bowl rings. He started strong safety. Carlton intercepted four passes as a rookie and 17 in his career, a career that rewarded him with a pair of Pro Bowl appearances. The 49ers dynasty of the 1980s began with that thrilling 1981 NFC title game victory of the Dallas Cowboys on the catch by Dwight Clark. With the Cowboys return to the Bay Area this week to play the 49ers, we thought it would be an opportune time to invite Carlton to join us. Carlton Williamson, welcome to the show. Thank you, Rick. I'm excited to be on your show. I appreciate you for having me. Appreciate that. Hey, Carlton, let's go back to that 81 season, the 81 draft, in fact. The Niners took uh, cornerbacks Ronnie Lott in the first round, 
Eric Wright in the second, then drafted you in the third round. You know, we expect first-round draft picks like Lott and even second-rounders like Wright to start. But when did you learn that you also figured into the starting lineup as a rookie? Well, actually, uh, I guess it was draft day. Uh, I didn't know that the 49ers was going to draft me or not. Uh, but they did call back then. Uh, you had to sit around and wait for the phone, uh, wait by the phone until you heard from a organization. Uh, well, the 49ers called and uh, and told me that they drafted me. But it was George Seifert, the position coach at that time, defensive back coach. Uh, he called, followed up, called, and uh, said, "Carlton, uh, we've got, as you might already know, we've drafted you in the third round, and we're excited about you uh, standing." Uh, Walking right in and uh, and and playing uh, on on day one, so he kind of you know, gave me the heads up that uh, it was gonna I was gonna get a shot at the starting position. It was uh, up to me to hold on to it. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the only veteran in the secondary was free safety Dwight Hicks. Yet your secondary never allowed more than 260 yards passing in a single game that season. So what was it? Great coaching or some very talented players with a very slight learning curves? Well, I, it was it was a combination of both. Uh, we had great talent coming in. Um, we were under the radar, but when we you know, once after the draft, it was a week later. We're we're all in San Francisco now. We're we're practicing, and this is back in May. Uh, so we're working, learning the system uh, right away. So we 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 just uh, it was a short summer. Before you know it, it was uh, going to camp, rookie camp, which was early August, and uh, so we were we was just being drilled like just the Chinese uh, the torture of the uh, uh, drilling plays every day, learning the system of uh, what we were doing, and, and working together. This is just a defensive back unit, uh, the the rookie that was there. So uh, it, it was kind of pound in us. So it, it took us a while to get it together uh, when the season started, but things started gelling for us, and uh, we we started uh, just getting better and better each week, uh, making fewer and fewer mistakes. You know, how much did your development as defensive backs accelerate practicing against Joe Montana every day? Oh, yeah, if you can imagine that. I mean, we had a competitive practice uh, every day, uh, particularly at training camp, and even uh, just uh, when we're going through the perimeter drill. Uh, that's with the wide receivers and occasionally the running backs uh, and quarterbacks. But we, uh, we're going after it. you got somebody like Joe Montana throwing the ball, uh, great wide receivers. So we were really pushing, uh, being pushed every day to get better and better. We knew the ball was going to be on point. So we really just had to focus on, and what George Seifer was teaching us was to uh, uh, play the receiver, not the ball, because the ball is going to be there, but you got to be in, uh, in place with the receiver and uh, to defend that play, and that's kind of uh, helped us. And but with a quarterback like Joe, that definitely made us better quick. Yeah, you know the Fort Niners finished six and ten in nineteen eighty, and no one had them penciled in as a Super Bowl contender in eighty one especially with such a young secondary. At, at one point during the season, did you realize your team was special? I like to think that it was, uh, and I, I'm sure a lot of my uh, uh, ex-teammates would agree with me, it was the uh, Pittsburgh-Stiller game. We played Pittsburgh uh, on their home field uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, they had not w- lost to an NFC championship, I mean, an NFC team 
uh, in some crazy amount of years, something like 10, 12 years. Uh, and this was a big pivotal point for us. We went in there. We were on a, a kind of a sizable uh, winning streak. We started uh, feeling that we were getting a little better, and we thought this would be a great test for us. And we walked away with that in that game being very uh, victorious. Uh, I actually had one of the best games of my career, got the game ball from that game. And I think all of us kind of knew or felt that, hey, we, we got something here, and it's, uh, we continue to play the way we're playing, that we uh, definitely could win our division, which was uh, one of the main focus at that time. Right. What do you recall about that 81 title game, the catch? Where were you, and, and just what were your memories of that? Oh, my gosh. Well, we were on the sideline. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> uh, we came off the field, and, of course, we you know, was given the fourth quarter, sec- uh, minutes left in the game. And uh, after getting a break, uh, we were standing and we're watching it ourselves. But ironically, interesting enough, rather, uh, the, we practiced that play. Uh, we saw Bill Walsh in the offense working on that throw it back in the back of the end zone. Uh, at the end of practice, uh, they would do that, and just to try to get the mechanics down, the timing down. And it was great to see how well they executed that in the time when we really needed it. So uh, it was it was it was rejuvenating uh, uh, just to, to be a part of that experience and to see our offense execute that play. Which uh, put us over the top, but in uh, for the NFC Championship, that was great because we knew that we felt the 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 winner of that NFC Championship game was going to win the Super Bowl, <laughs> and uh, we wanted to be <laughs> that team. <laughs> <laughs> I can say why. Hey, you know, the Forty Nineers were such a great champion in both the '80s and the '90s. Does it pain you to see how the Forty Nineers have been struggling so in recent years, and, and even more so this season? It does. It, it really does. Uh, uh, it's, it's so much has, has changed in the organization, but uh, we still have our roots. We have our. Uh, we we felt our legacy of what what the Forty Nine ers stood for in the eighties and nineties. We would love to see that continue today, but uh, it's cyclical. Uh, you, you go through dry spots. You go through dark uh, times, and uh, apparently that is kind of where they are right now. But uh, it it is it's. It's yeah, bitter uh, to to watch and and to see you you want to uh, you want the team that you play with or play for to to always do well, but uh, it, it's it's a tough one to watch sometimes. But they just as we turn it around, then uh, maybe they have a great opportunity to do that and just continue to build on uh, some of their defense, and they probably got to get some things going on offense as well. Sure. Speaking of defense, you know, the NFL has legislated great defense out of the game. You can't hit the quarterback. You can't touch receivers. How difficult would it have been for your 1981 secondary, secondary to compete in today's NFL? Well, you know, it would be extremely difficult the way we wanted to play the game. Um, we felt, you know, you got to have some level of intimidation in the, in, uh, back then. Anything you can use for your advantage to, uh, to try to gain the edge on your opponent. Uh, the way the game is designed now, uh, there's a lot of high scoring, a lot of excitement. That's good for the league, but uh, it, it would be—I admit—it would be very difficult to uh, to play in the environment today. But I do admire and and, and uh, applaud uh, the way they're teaching tackling now to kind of uh, 
alleviate uh, some of the, the brain uh, uh, injuries uh, or trauma, traumatic injuries uh, to the brain um, by uh, better uh, tackling techniques that's being taught. So you don't see a lot of the big colliding, crunching, uh, brawling hits. But uh, I guess you see more <laughs> the spectacular plays for their offense because they can't really uh, – because of the way the game has been legislated, like you said. So it would, it would be tough, I think, for myself, Ronnie, and uh, uh, Eric alike uh, to play in today's uh, environment. Carlton, I want to talk about another great team you played on this one in college, the Pitt Panthers. Your senior season, you played with Dan Marino, Hugh Green, Ricky Jackson, Jimbo Covert, Russ Grimm, Mark May – Lots of Pro Bowls and Super Bowl rings in that group. Pitt, Pitt finished 11-1, ranked second in the nation that season. How did you ever lose a game with all that talent? Wow. I, you know what? Um, your listeners might not realize this. That was the only game I missed that season. Now, I don't know if, we, if the outcome would have been any different. But uh, it was a away game at Florida State, and they had a good handle on us for some reason. Our office uh, wasn't able to get that generated there. But yeah, I was nursing a sprained ankle and on the sideline. That was kind of bitter to watch and uh, to see that defeat and be a part of that. Uh, that, that was tough. But yeah, we had some great talent on that senior squad there and uh, great talent up and coming, like, with, like you mentioned, Dan Marino and uh, Jimbo Colbert, those guys. Uh, I think Jimbo was a freshman then, it may be at that time, but uh, it was a great talent out there. It was, it was great to be a part of that team and to go in and see so many guys from the, from that organization, uh, that school, go, go into the pros, uh, go on in, in the draft. That was wonderful. Made me very proud. That was a very talented team. Well, Carl, we'd like to thank you for stopping by to visit us and um, reminding us just that once upon a time, the 49ers were a truly great football team. Thank you so much, Rick. We have great memories of that, that's for sure. And I appreciate you having me on your show. It was great talking to you. Thanks, uh, it should be a good uh, matchup. Hopefully we'll see a good matchup this coming weekend between the, the 49ers and the and Dallas Cowboys. Well, let's hope so. Thanks, Carl. Take care. All right, sir. You take care. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our next guest, Eric Allen, is one of three players in NFL history with 54 career interceptions, but the only one still not in the Hall of Fame. Their 54 interceptions earned both Willie Brown and Daryl Green first ballot Hall of Fame acclamation. But Eric is now in his 12th year of eligibility and has never once been a finalist. He's certainly worthy. Eric went to six Pro Bowls in his 14 seasons and has already been inducted in the Philadelphia Eagles Hall of Fame. Eric's on the preliminary list for the Hall's class of 2018, looking for his first-ever trip to the semifinals. And we've invited him to join us on the show today to discuss his career and his Hall of Fame candidacy. Eric Allen, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's uh, it's awesome, man. You know, I love uh, talking football, and um, it, it should be uh, – a uh, good opportunity for us to kind of chew up the old times a little bit. 
let's talk about the height of football. How important is the Hall of Fame to you, and how frustrating is it that 17 years since you retired, you and your career have never been deemed worthy of discussion by the Hall of Fame? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, 17 years, man, that's a long time. <laughs> yeah, tell me about and it. And I think the first couple years, uh, I was, uh, you know, I was, I was hurt and frustrated. But as time goes, you get older. Um, I, I'm, to be honest, I'm a little more worried about getting tickets to Comic-Con than I am uh, the, <laughs> the Hall of Fame, actually. <laughs> I have four sons, and uh, so that, that's, that, that's the most important thing uh, for me right now. I, hey, listen, if I had to do it all over again, I would do it the same way. Um, I have great respect uh, for the game of football. I love it to this day. Uh, again, you know, with, with so many things going on at this point, uh, it never once made me waver from my love of the game, not being inducted into the Hall of Fame, uh, not being on, you know, the, the final panel. Uh, none of that has really changed, <clears throat> you know, who I am and how I've looked at the game. My sons all play. Uh, there's no frustration at all. And, and once again, it, it would be a outstanding honor, but to be honest, at this point, it doesn't really move the needle uh, very much for me in how I look at uh, my time in uh, in the National Football League. Well, you know, Eric, it's funny. Uh, uh, Floyd Little told us one time that he was talking to Jim Brown, who was his pal, of course, because they knew each other at Syracuse, and this is before Floyd was in the hall, and Jim said to him, what do you care whether they put you in a Hall of Famer now? You know who you are. You know you're a Hall of Famer. And Floyd said, it's easy for you to say you're in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> so, I, you know, so I, I think of you now, and you know, Ken Riley has 65 picks, and Everson Walls right. at 57, and Pat Fisher with 56, and none of them have even been discussed as a finalist. Right. Meanwhile, there's twice as many receivers as corners enshrined. Uh, what are we missing about the position and the importance of, of defensive backs? Yeah, uh, it's a great point. And Everson was <clears throat> one of the guys I looked up to, uh, tri- just a tremendous player and always around the football, <clears throat> always helping his team with those great interceptions. I think you said 57 of those. Right. He also won a Super Bowl. So, I, you know, there is no way that uh, I would have thought uh, years later he wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, but again, I, you know, he's one of my favorites ever, right? And I don't look at him any differently uh, that he's not in the Hall of Fame. He's still an outstanding football player, someone I studied, and I studied a lot of guys. Uh, he was not an exclusive guy, and, that, you know, and that's one thing that I'm not sure people really understand. When I'm talking about exclusive guy, there's probably 11 exclusive guys who are in the Hall of Fame that just played corner. Herb Adderley, Lynn Barney, uh, Mel Blunt, uh, Willie Brown, my great mm-hmm. friend, Daryl Green, uh, you know, of course, love Daryl. Another one of my favorites of all time, Mike Haynes, uh, Jimmy Johnson of the 49ers, Night Train Lane going back a ways, Emmett. <clears throat> and, I, you know, I consider Prime Dion an uh, uh, exclusive corner. I know later on, you know, he tried to move him to safety when his toe got messed up. But for those exclusive guys who were never – in my opinion, run off of the corner. And I think that's a huge distinction. When you're talking about the position on defense at cornerback, 
being able to play the position for 8, 10, 13, 14, 15 years, starting. I started for 14 years at the cornerback spot. I was never approached to play any position. The reason why I retire is because I didn't play up to my standards. I told myself long ago, if you go through a complete season and you can't get more than two interceptions, it's time to go. <laughs> and I walked into Al Davis's office and I told him, hey, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, this is an opportunity for me to play for one of my favorite teams of all time, um, the Oakland Raiders, and I had a great time, but I'm gone. And I probably could have played another three or four years, but that just my standards had to be met for me to play. So I came in as a starter. I started the first practice. I took Buddy Ryan when I was drafted in 1988. He had a conversation with me uh, the, after the college season was over and said, hey, I'm going to pick you first round. And then he called me back about two days before the draft. He's like, listen, he, uh, I like this big tight end out of uh, <laughs> Oklahoma. And if I can get him and you, that would be a great day. And so it worked out where he was there at the 13th pick, I believe. And um, he had to trade up in the draft and got me like the first second pick of the second round. So he was loyal not to a point where it, he couldn't get me in the first round. So he said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do, E, is you're our starting right cornerback. I was like, excuse me? I said, I, I'm like <laughs> – 20 years old. I mean, you know, I'm in the same huddle as Reggie White and Seth Joyner and Jerome Brown. He cut basically every right cornerback. I took every rep for, and that was the old days when you come into the camp and we were there like a month and a half. We were bringing, you know, televisions and, and, <laughs> and all the such. So, again, it goes back to my point is I was an exclusive guy. I stepped on the field when I was 20 years old and started and left the game 14 years later as a starter. And those things are important to me, that you leave the game under you know, the circumstances that you want to leave the game. So I was very proud and happy and excited about uh, being able to play in the league <clears throat> that I dreamed about playing in and played against some great receivers uh, who – are all in, basically. <laughs> I face like 11 of them who are, who, are, who are all in. And if you talk to each one of those guys, the Reeds, the Rices, James Lofton, Steve Largent, uh, I, it's a group of them, like 11, I think, including T.O. And, and Randy Moss, who will probably be in. Um, but that position is judged a little bit differently than cornerbacks because of the nature of their position. They're getting into the end zone. Those guys are, as we all know, they're big-time divas, and uh, <laughs> usually we are not. Yeah, Eric, I was covering the Cowboys back then. I remember those defenses in the early 90s. They were among the most talented, dominant, and intimidating in NFL history. Do you think if those Eagles had won a Super Bowl, would you already have a Boston Canton? Wow, that, that's a great question. And <clears throat> yes, I believe so. And I believe that when you're on a type of unit, defense, offense, that 
has nicknames and sets the trends, and yeah. people know your defensive players uh, without their helmets on, and you are uh, talented enough, and things work out um, the way uh, that you have great balance on offense and defense, and you have a quarterback who can get it done with a running game, and you win a Super Bowl, I think that gives you that extra boost. As at this point, Reggie, is the only guy off that 91 defense that was, you know, considered one of the best ever uh, in modern-day football. Uh, And Reggie is really recognized more at the Green Bay than he is as an Eagle. So you think about, you know, that great year we had, really, that 91 year where we finished first overall in every category uh, and had a, you know, great production from several different guys, I think all five five of us went to the Pro Bowl that year, which was, you know, at the time unheard of to have, you know, five defensive players uh, from the same team at the Pro Bowl. Uh, but we didn't win the Super Bowl. And we had issues at quarterback. And Randall really hadn't matured uh, to where he was the kind of player he was later on in the season. We didn't have a really great running game. And maybe Buddy spent too much time, you know, on the defense uh, in in – and when he was let go, you know, we kind of flourished, but didn't have that offense. But, yeah, I think so. I, I think um, Seth would probably have a little more juice. I think I would probably be in. Um, and, uh, and so that's kind of how it goes. We weren't fortunate enough to bring a Super Bowl to, uh, to Philly. And you guys, Cowboys down there, beat us up a couple times you know, <laughs> to, to get there. And those were some great battles. But, again, um, I, I really – Wish we'd have been able to at least hoist that trophy up and give those fans in South Philly an opportunity to really uh, uh, be a part of those 90s uh, Eagles teams with the Super Bowl. You know, it's no secret that the NFL has legislated defense out of the game. Goose and I talk, yell about it all the time. Uh, you know, I was around the Raiders for most of my uh, career, you know, when, when yeah. Willie and all those guys were playing and Lester Hayes and Mike Hanson, you know, they'd all be in jail now. Believe me. Uh, you know, what do you what do you think your gangrene defense, uh, how would you have fared in the in the league the way it is now? Or would you all have been out of the league within a week? It would be really difficult. I'm going to just drop, I mean, Clyde Simmons, uh, you know, consistently in the 90s was a double-digit sack guy, and he had some great techniques, but he would pound quarterbacks. I mean, he was following through on quarterbacks. We really ha- we really didn't have an issue with, you know, the, the what we call the Tom Brady rule. <laughs> you know, we were basically up high, hitting guys hard, and we were collapsing the pocket. I mean, there was one time, and I'm pretty sure you guys know, we sacked Troy Aikman ten times. I mean, yeah. we were just all over him. So there would be a lot of fines. Uh, <laughs> there would be a lot of uh, uh, guys who would be a little antsy of catching the ball, coming across the middle, because, you know, we had you know two of the greatest hitters and impact guys uh, in the secondary with Wes Hopkins and Andre Waters, and you throw along Terry Hogue, which a lot of people miss out on. And Terry was a tremendous player, played with us early uh, in you know those years in the late 80s, but he was a tremendous football player and really – that's Eric, we could talk football with you all day, but unfortunately, we've got <laughs> to run. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Hey, we want to thank you for stopping by and wishing you really best of luck going forward with your Hall of Fame candidacy. Hey, man, I really appreciate it, man. Anytime you guys get bored and want to talk some football, <laughs> just, just give sure. me a call. You got two <laughs> votes here, I can tell you that much. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thanks, Eric. Yeah.
You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. That's the two that means we're all, almost out of time, but we still have the two-minute drill to go. So, Ronnie, I'm going to take us home with it. Deshaun Watson or Dak Prescott? Well, Gooseman, both have great promise, but I'd like Watson since I watched him dismember Alabama in two straight national championship games. Guy's the best leader I've seen since General Patton. Deshaun Watson or Jose Altuve? Well, you know me. Watson can take a hit, but Altuve can hit. And what do I like to do? Hit, not be hit. <laughs> the Colts have already played all four of their non-conference games in the first six weeks of the season. Is the NFL laying the groundwork for a Colts move back to the NFC? <laughs> What the NFL needs to do is go back to doing the schedule with dominoes on the kitchen table like Burt Bell did. They never had these problems then. Nice plug for your book. <laughs> Thank you very much. There were nine 100-yard rushes last week and only four 300-yard passers. Are running games making a comeback in the NFL? No. There are just more quarterbacks having to run for their life in the NFL. New England has allowed a 300-yard passer in an NFL record six consecutive games. How many yards would the greatest quarterback of all time, John Unitas, have put up against these Patriots? Well, I would say this. 300 by halftime. <laughs> Todd Gurley, Helen Gurley-Brown, or Antonio Brown? Well, Goosebane, how long have you known me? You know this. I feel good. James Brown. There is no other Brown. <laughs> how long will it take the Giants to become as competitive a football team as the Jets? Well, let's see. I would say... Two more weeks. They'll both be three and five. And they'll both still stink. And they'll both still stink. That's right. <laughs> the winless Browns are living, breathing proof that Moneyball does not work in the NFL. So what's to become a Browns analytics guru, Paul DePodesta? Well, you know, Gooseman, in 2005, his Dodgers posted the second worst record since the team arrived in L.A. in 1958. He got fired. Then he's joined the board of directors at Sears. A year later, they closed over 150 stores. So I'd say he's got unemployment coming, but probably get another job. Here's one in your wheelhouse. Who's a better quarterback for the Buccaneers this weekend? Jamison Winston with a sprained throwing shoulder or a healthy Amish rifle? Oh. Ryan Fitzpatrick. Goose, man. When the Amish rifle is loaded, somebody's going to get hit. May not be your team, but somebody's going to get it. That's the end of the game. We want to thank Eric Allen, Mark Bavaro, Carl Williamson, and Pete Doherty for joining us, and Robert Harris Jr. for producing us, and you for listening. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes on your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us at this time and on this station next week. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.